welcome to the Wiggly Podcast. I'm in the office today just squeezing in some catching up because we've had such a week. We've been at the Get Britain Buzzing event in London with Bug Life and there was a bit of controversy there again with the bug boxes. How unusual. So we've got an interview with Bill Oddie and Jermaine Greer coming up on the show and we've also had the Duchess of Cornwall and Nigella Lawson on our Wiggly Garden at Hay Festival. So that's been a really amazing week. And tonight we're hoping that Anne Robinson's coming to dig some plants in. Well, there we are. Nigella planted wild marjoram and the Duchess of Cornwall planted toad flax. Not only that, we had Terry, Terry Walton, the Radio 2 allotmenteer on the garden, recording lots and lots of tips that we'll bring to you about veggie growing and gardening throughout the next few podcasts. But first, time for Monty. A Monty compost cast, a weekly fact on composting. Keep a bag of leaves next to the composter so you always have a brown material to cover the new green waste additions. This will also help keep the fly populations down in the summer. Thank you, Monty. And Hay sees the launch of our pumpkin seed competition. So if you'd like a packet of pumpkin seeds to grow, if you're under 16, you've got the chance of winning a push bike. And the thing was, I was just taking the seeds out of the showground and I came upon Carol Klein, who saw me struggling with the box and helped me with it to the van. How cool is that? Thank you, Carol. Uh, here we go. Here's our first interview with Jermaine Greer, who thinks bug boxes are a complete waste of time, effort, and money. Can I sit down? Of course you can sit down. Here. Thank you, Jermaine, Thank you. for agreeing to be interviewed by me. I'm grateful. I was impressed with your enthusiasm for tonight's event, but there's a mystery for me that I'm hoping that you can solve, which is when a small boy is intrigued by invertebrates and gets enthusiastic and it's all wonderful, grows up, he seems to become a man that becomes obsessed with mowing the lawn and turning everything into the most tidiest garden in the world. What happens in your view? What the heck happens? Well, he loses out, doesn't he, really? His young enthusiasm is just blunted. It doesn't lead anywhere. Nobody gives him a dissecting microscope. Nobody gives him a decent camera with a proper macro lens and motor drive. So he can't collect his insects and he can't put them in his album. He remains a player, a fool, tinkering. That's one of the things that happens. Actually, I don't know too many men who don't hate mowing the lawn. It's a mystery, isn't it? Well, lawn is the most terrible tyranny. When I'm queen of the universe, there will be no more lawn. Do you think the gardening press and the garden centres have a responsibility to help us to accept that gardens should be a haven for all sorts of species and not try and obliterate everything and have a beautifully striped, gorgeous green bit in the middle? As far as I'm concerned, the garden centres can do what they like. What I would say to anyone listening to me is don't spend your money at the garden centre. 
If you can't find people to give you cuttings of the things you want to grow, if you don't have a way of bringing them on in July, so you can actually plant out things that are a bit special, if you have to buy bedding plants have been brought up in overheated Dutch greenhouses that are full of super pests, full of huge white fly like rhinoceroses. If that's what you have to do, then don't garden. Let it go. Just let it go. Let it turn into whatever you like. Rough anything. I don't care what the garden centres do because they're there to make money. That's their first responsibility. They mislead the public in lots of ways. They sell them plants that won't grow in their pH. They used to tell you what the pH was that the plant wanted. They don't tell you that anymore. And I watch people walking out of my local garden centre with plants that I could run up and tell them, you've paid £20 for that thing in that pot. You've got to put it into your chalky soil. It will last three weeks. It will start to go yellow and it will eventually die. Or else you can run back and buy a whole lot of peat-based compost, which has ruined the, the peat bogs in, in Ireland and try and grow it like that, but that's hopeless because in fact the water supply you're going to be using is full of chalk. So <laughs> give up now. Most of the stuff I see around garden centres is heartbreaking. It's people spending a lot of money and heading for total failure. So what I would say to people, and this is tough, you know, I wouldn't get a job as a, a correspondent on the newspaper if I said this, because that's what keeps them going. I would say stay away from the garden centre. Don't go there. Don't spend your money there. Give your money to Bug Life. You'll get better value. That's what I'd say. Do you spend money on your garden? So, for example, do you feed your birds? I do feed my birds because I'm surrounded by agri-desert. So there is literally nothing for my little birds. So my birds are fed on sunflowers, hearts, sunflower seeds, but they call them hearts for some reason. Ah, germane. There are no sunflower heart manufacturers in the UK. All sunflower hearts come from China. So if you want to make a real difference, you should... Way, way. Well, Sending me sunflowers. <laughs> you may think of using black sunflowers because they're produced in the UK. Well, these are already cracked. Oh, yeah. And my, my little birds can't manage them otherwise. I used to do peanuts, but they're too fatty and they're not right. And I put them in the RSPB holders and all of that. I also have doves. And the doves have taken to swinging on the bird feeders, which is a real <laughs> uh, They really annoy me. So, no, I do feed my little birds, but we also feed them because my property is very, very messy. So I see them swinging on seeding grass heads and so on. Have you got any bird boxes up? Yes. Brilliant. Now, as a purveyor of bug hotels, you did give us a very hard time just earlier, which I understand completely. I know that bumblebee boxes are just about a waste of time, but I just wanted to persuade you against being too harsh on all <laughs> bug hotels. The reason being that I see so many people that have an interest that don't know how to actually move forward. And the bug hotel, which attracts, we've got ones working over there with mason bees in them, it might not be the perfect answer compared to um, having a native hedge and having a diversity in your garden, but it certainly gives them a head start. And I know that often they'll spend hours watching those mason bees fill up those tubes and get the mud and carry on with it. So I wanted to say to you, will you please not be so harsh on every bug hotel? Just save it for those garden centres who put up ones that don't do anything. Well now, 
I've got three acres. That's yeah. more than most people have. But even if I only had the house half acre, I would probably have a dead hedge. Whenever I had to tidy up my trees, move things that were at eye level and were poking me in the glasses, I would actually build uh, a, a dead hedge. Yeah. Um, when we are neatening the wood, we stack all the wood. So we have huge amounts of also, but even if you put, if you're growing a tree and you put an old piece of carpet that you've got from the tip yep. to stop weeds um, competing with the little tree, you lift that up in January and there'll be newts asleep all underneath it. Same thing, behind your rabbit guards you'll find masses of snails. Leave them there. Even more interesting, mark them. Try and find out where they go. Visit them every yeah, day. Yeah, I like that. Because snails have a very complicated social life, which I frankly don't get. How do they all end up? I've ended up with like 500 snails clustered in one place in midwinter. They must have come from miles away. <laughs> And how do snails talk to each other? I don't know. But I hear they send out love darts where the male... That's just a penis by a <laughs> And on that note, I say thank you so much for being interviewed. You're a star. Thank you. That interview was carried out at the Get Britain Buzzing event, which was held at the Royal Society in, in London. There's a YouTube video if you search on Get Britain Buzzing, that's a real tongue twister, on YouTube, you can see the event for yourself. And folks like Tony Blair spoke, Matt Shardlow of Bug Life spoke, Bill Oddie, Jermaine Greer, and all sorts of people were there. And Bug Life's aims are to aim to protect and restore wildflower habitats for UK pollinators and find out why their numbers are declining and stop extinctions and let people know how important pollinators are and to persuade politicians to pursue policies which help conserve pollinators. Anyway, Jermaine Greer said um, it was a complete waste of money and effort having a, a bug hotel which uh, wound several people up at the event. Then I got to speak to Bill Oddy and uh, hopefully he was going to have a different view. Well, it didn't quite work out how I thought. I'm very pleased on the weekly podcast to have Bill Oddy. Thank you, Bill, for um, having this little chat. Um, can you explain to me your reasons for supporting tonight so enthusiastically? Was it those bugs that were wandering around? Was it Tony Blair? Was it those hula hoops or what? It was none of those things. No, I, have to <laughs> I had a feeling it might not be. I have to admit, several of those aspects uh, had me on the brink of embarrassment. But, um, <laughs> and me. <laughs> I don't come here to see street theatre. I'll get a Covent Garden if I want to watch it. Anyway, they're still at it. It is a bit odd, isn't it? No, without a doubt, it's, it, it's as simple as this, you know. It sounds a bit of a pompous statement, but I'm on the side of life, not just bug life, in terms... And, and there, there is no question whatsoever, if you look at the whole of the cross-section of nature, wildlife, call it what you will, that the invertebrate kingdom is more, and I use this word very intentionally, important than virtually any other. Much as I want to save everything from from small birds, warblers to tigers to everything else, 
and have trouble actually explaining why that's important. It's, it's, a, it's almost an aesthetic thing. It's almost a, a philosophical thing. There's all sorts of things like that. But in practical terms, you couldn't say our lives depend on some of those things. Life in the sea perhaps does, and certainly we depend on the invertebrates because not only are there things which frankly are a problem, like mosquitoes, etc., etc., um, but also we wouldn't have much of the food we without the, the um, pollinators, which would be, we wouldn't have it. So Einstein came up with a stunning statistic, which was that if bees cease to exist, that the human race will starve within about five or six years. Yeah. Now that is absolutely, what? Yeah. You think, oh, silly old man's got it wrong, hasn't he? You know, yeah. He's been drinking again, but, <laughs> you know, and he might have been exaggerating a bit, but, but, you know, the theory is there. Now, on the photo that the chief exec showed of farmland, he announced what a bare and barren land it was. Now, I happened to see the most wonderful native hedge across the side of that photo and across the middle of that photo. And I think often we tend to blame farmers for lots of things, and there was that yes. wonderful hedge. Yes, well, I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, the one thing I'm... Yes, it infuriates me, the sort of blanket farm and farmer knocking um, is exceptionally um, unfair and counterproductive as well, because in fact, there is no question, there's a very high percentage nowadays, something that's changed in my lifetime, of farmers who not only understand what they have on their farm, but know how it works and want it to be there and, and actually enjoy having the wildlife. I know I've been in lots of I'm lucky enough normally to be under friendly conditions that I'm filming there saying what a great farm it is. Yeah. <laughs> and, but it's a pleasure, you know, to yeah. go to these farms. Yeah. And the guy say, I, I remember some, one farmer telling me he was walking round his farm with an old guy who'd been working there for years. He couldn't move that well and, and it was a lovely morning though and he said, I'll, I'll walk around with you. And this, this old chap was walking along going... Mm, I haven't seen any of those. I haven't seen any of those. Oh, they used to, oh, that's gone. And he said, by the time he got back, the owner of the farm said he was so upset and angry, mixture of everything, realising you know, that how much it had deteriorated, that he immediately, it was the incentive for him, it's like, right, you know, I'm going to improve the farm. And it's not that difficult, you know, they, they, things can be done remarkably quickly. And this particular campaign, what struck me was what each of us can do in our garden. I agree. I think, if I'm absolutely honest, I think, I think bug life and the whole issue of invertebrates or whatever they, their subtitle is called, and somebody's got to invert, yeah. leave for invertebrates or something, <laughs> yeah. it's got a problem. It's not of its own making. But it's got the problem of Java, like invertebrates, and big words like that, you know. It has an image problem of, obviously, creatures which human beings have a phobia about and so on and so forth, you know. It has a kind of affection problem there. Yeah. And uh, I think that's one of the things that they'll, um, they need to sort of combat as well. And I think the other thing that has to... And this is, I know it's in a very odd statement, but we're always going on about, you know, how important kids are and so on and so forth, which indeed they are, I think, mine are anyway, but, um, 
but you know how, how they have a natural interest in wildlife and and it's their life it's their world and everything but there is a tendency for anything in newspapers or whatever or indeed even leaflets and you know and magazines to make it sound a bit like a sort of kids society or something yeah. like that. kids I, activity thing you know because yeah. everybody knows, oh they always call mini beasts you know we're going looking for mini beasts today yeah. children we're going to find mini beasts oh what have you got there you know and immediately of course that relegates it to something that under is sixes yeah. yeah and you know wildlife in general has that problem anyway yeah now as a purveyor of excellent bug hotels what did you think of that woman going on and on about how awful they were. I'm going to challenge her with it. Because, you know, what a wonderful thing it is to put up a bird box. What a wonderful thing it is to put up a bug box when they come and inhabit it. What do you think, Bill? Well, first of all, that was no woman, that was Jermaine Greer. It was very, very... We'll come out and say exactly what she thinks, even more than I do, and with a great deal more eloquence. I'm a great fan of Jermaine, so it's absolute gold. And I know what she's saying. Uh, perhaps it's perhaps a bumblebee it, it box, been, isn't no, it? It could have been more discreetly put because I'm going to almost join her on this. Because if you go into a garden centre, say, oh, can I have yeah. a sort of bee box or an insect box or something like that, they knock you back about 15, 20 quid. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, those guys will find somewhere. Yeah. Or you can make them yourself, you know, yeah. out of, out of um, broken up bamboo, hollow bamboo and things yeah. like that. It's not that difficult. And the bees have voted with their wings and their buzzes <laughs> in my garden yeah. because I have a nice little colony taking over one of my bird boxes. They get uh, like mad. And so yard. have I, yeah. actually. But I've also got in my bug box, I've got lots of bees underneath and just in the top of it, I've got a little wren. Oh, that's, that's very good. Yeah. Oh, if, if they'd accommodate both. Absolutely. No, that's because the bees... <laughs> took over the wren's home one yeah. year. I had a couple of years, three years ago the wren was in the box and the bees had been looking, oh we'll have that one, you know. And I put my hand in to clear, clear out the box and there was a bee about to settle down for the winter. The queen to be honest, I'm not too sad about it because I do understand the point. It's just that I think that if people are willing to yes. spend the money to shortcut the system, that's great and that's the last thing we should not. Yes, that's a very, I think, I think that's a very good point. I mean, you could put it like saying, if you're going to the garden centre, better to buy something like that, obviously, than another spray can of pesticides. Yeah, but even better to buy some wildflowers, I suppose. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Thanks ever so much, Bill. (laughs) Thank you. Well, of course, all bug boxes aren't perfect, but in case that you're wondering why ever we sell them if they don't work, especially bee hotels, They are fantastic. And Bug Life issued a statement after that event which says, Bee hotels have been scientifically proven to be very effective ways of attracting pollinators into your garden. You can either make them or buy them. They can contain bamboo canes which have hollows inside and make amazing sites for solitary bees. But other materials can be used as well which attract lots of types of bugs. It's also a great way of recycling things. If you have some bee homes and some lovely wildflowers in your garden, you'll soon have the place buzzing. 
So there we are. Here we go with a bit of Terry Walton who joined us in our lovely Hay Festival Garden, the Wiggly Garden at Hay, just today. Right, I'm here with Terry Walton and the thing is, Terry, our pumpkin growers need to know how to grow the perfect pumpkin. So can you talk me through planting the thing? Where best, etc. Where best, where best. But pumpkins are, if you want to make a decent pumpkin or a range of decent pumpkins, then they are very, very greedy plants. So need lots and lots of nourishment. Now, Luck. Muck, that's the good muck. stuff. Good, solid muck, but well-rotted muck. It doesn't want to be too fresh because it's rather acidic. And they pull their roots, will get singed, and they'll stop their growth. But a, a two-year-old compost heap is the perfect situation for a pumpkin. It's great because you're not using them in the garden. It's allowed to roam free wherever you wish, and it can get its roots re really deep down into the real good stuff. So would you plant the seeds in the compost heap? Oh, no, no. If you're going to grow, it depends what you... If you're going to grow... I want the biggest. You want the biggest. I want the heaviest. Right. So if you're going to do that, then you have to start extremely early. You need that pumpkin seed sown in April in a warm place in a fairly big pot because they don't like root disturbance. So get some like a 10 or 12-inch pot. Put your seed in. Well, put a couple of seed in is always the best because someone's law being what it is. If you put one in, that's the one that won't come up. If you put two in and two will come up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're like companionship when they grow in. And then you have to be really ruthless once the seed leaf has formed and rip one out and then you really got to spoil this one. Keep watering it. Keep giving it plenty of liquid feed to keep it going on quite happy. Worm we? We'll, no, we come to the, we'll come not at this stage. That's, ah. that's his treat later on. Okay. Yeah, you, so you, what sort of liquid feed is good? I tell you what's good at that stage is the Bokashi feed because it's a very deep straw, very nice liquid, and you only need a tablespoonful in your gallon watering can. And that also stops something else. You know what's wonderful about Bokashi liquid? It stops damping off as well. It stops the, it stops the base damping. So it's brilliant for that. So get it growing to a big plant, and then come mid-May, you need to get it out. But mid-May is still a bit difficult time in the garden, so you need to put a cloche over it and cover it. And then let it get its roots settled in and quite happy. And it came, the first week in June, whip this cloche off, and by then it's made a decent-sized plant. Now, early on in its growth, it needs to make lots and lots of growth. And the way to make lots of growth is plenty of nitrogen feed. And this is where your worm bee comes in handy. I know you, I put two cupfuls in a two-gallon watering can and give this a regular good feed with this. And this will put on masses and masses of foliage. And then depends what you want to do. As I say, if you want a real gigantic pumpkin, then this thing will trail off about 10 or 12 foot and leave the first pumpkin form at least 10 to 12 foot from the root. And then keep all the rest of them at bay. Any other ones that form... Curtains for them. Really? Just, you know, curtains for them. You're ruthless. You've got to be absolutely ruthless. If you want a real gigantic pumpkin, then that's the time to do it. Why is that? Does it, all the energy need all to go All the into energy that needs one? to go into one. If you want a monster, then it's, it's, it's got to be a monster and it's got to have no friends at all. Because one of our classes is the guess the weight pumpkin. So in that right. case, you could keep several going to hedge your bet. Yeah, but then you will not get the giants in. No. Because they, they will then divert. So you need energy. to decide. You, you need to decide, do you want three or four medium size? Do you want a lot of little ones, which are the sort of ones you see in the, at Halloween in the supermarket? Or do you want this gigantic yellow and orange monster in October, which will weigh 13 or 14 stone at least? <laughs> 
Or if you're a real good American grower, something like 1,700 pounds, whatever that is in stones. But I always want to be. The though. Americans are always the biggest and the best. And yeah. they feed them on natural oil. <laughs> but then the answer to that then is when it's growing, is once it's made plenty of growth, to get the pumpkin to form, you need a, a potash feed then. And a potash feed, you have, may have to cheat a bit there. And, and if you don't really want to go for potash in a chemical form, then something like seaweed extract. Plenty of seaweed extract. Pump into this thing to get the pumpkin to form. It's made its growth, and now you want the fruit to grow. And the other secret of it is lots and lots of water. Now, when I grew my giant pumpkin several years ago... Well, how big? How big? I how grew big? a 12 and a half stone. <laughs> an average size individual. And what did it like? That's like you, isn't it? That's a bit uh, lighter than me. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was about that at one time. When, but it, what, what, the reason I got bigger and the reason it got bigger is every day it sunk six pints of real ale. Really? Yes, it loves beer. It's like a good is man. Is this true? This is absolutely true. It was fed on six It went through in its growing season four 75-gallon kegs of beer. And every day it had six pints of real ale. We were great mates every night. We would sit there, we, were, we became major drinking buddies together. But the secret of the beer as well is it's got plenty of liquid going in and beer contains lots of natural ingredients, special real ale. You don't want to give it this cider, you don't want to give it this lager, it's not a lager, look. it's got to be real ale, and you keep pumping that full of that, and then come late October, the thing is getting so heavy, you need to put a, a, a piece of plastic under the thing, because it'll sink in the ground, it really is really heavy, and you leave it there. Because it rots, No, it? If, you, if you keep something, keep it off the ground because of the weight, put a plastic sheet or something underneath that keeps it away from the soil like or from the ground. Well, I wouldn't go pallet. It's forcing it up too much. You want a, a flat plate of some description where the water will run off. You don't want it sitting in water either and where it will not be in contact with the soil. OK. And then come Halloween, that is time, and it should have turned a nice deep orange by that time, which shows it's ripe. It's really, really hard. You can tap it with your knuckles and you can hear it all in sound and then you take that dreaded knife and you sever it from the plant. <laughs> and by this time, the plant is exhausted and going yellow anyway. And there you have a 12, 13, 14 stone pumpkin. Now, Terry, if you were going to eat such a, a beast, would you go for size, weight, or would you go for... what? Would you eat it? Would you... You can eat it because I used to grow them for a local school which was a children with learning difficulties, and they used to make out of that lots of chutney. Yeah. But it, it, and again, you can make pumpkin pie. The flesh is still... Even though it's a giant, you haven't lost none of the effects of the flavour. It has still got those flavours there. But, I mean, if you were going to grow an average pumpkin, you just want one slightly bigger than a football. Yeah. And that will give you the ideal size and the ideal taste for pumpkin pie. Otherwise, Auntie is going to be making pumpkin chutney till... What she makes, oh. it'd be as bad as the courgettes. And... <laughs> <laughs> you get sick and tired of the same vegetable. You? <laughs> you do. Thank you, Terry. Right. Thanks, Terry. There's a phone going. There's lots of wiggly orders coming in. The record sales of hay at Hay have been for our jugs, our uh, British Heron Cross pottery jugs. And so we're off to restock the stand. Well, Rach is, and we hope that you're listening next week. Thanks very much. Bye from me.
Okay, I've just got Philip Harris and he's about to share with me the most exciting moment of learning about snails love darts. Yes. Come on then. Well, when sna you know snails can adopt both roles. They're both male and female. They're hermaphrodites. Yes. But when they're going to adopt the male role, they have little spears made of calcium carbonate, the same stuff as chalk, that they shoot out right. to stab the female that they fancy. Right. Nobody quite knows the reason for this, whether it's to seduce her yeah. or whether it's to test her fertility right. and healthiness. But it proceeds with not every species, but quite a lot of species. And these darts they come out from their own bodies, they're, they're attached to them, and they go out sharply and stab. And I think it makes you love snails in a way that you would never love them without that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs>